Amen and amen. Well, good morning, familia. I am Cuban. I need a little more espresso than that. Good morning, familia. There it is. Well, as you just heard shouted out, my name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve as one of the pastors in our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia. Specifically, I get to serve as uh, the pastor of the congregation TVC in Streamwood. And so this morning, I bring you gratitude and greetings from your extended family members up in Streamwood. We are grateful to call you brothers and sisters in this family of God that he has put us in. Uh, before we continue, I want to actually ask you to stand because I want to read God's word, the passage we're going to be in this morning. Uh, we've been in this sermon series the Gospel of Matthew, and for the past few weeks, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning, our text is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. When you're there, say amen. amen. All right, if you've got your journals, we're on page 32. I should have said that a little bit earlier. You can scramble there really quick. All right, family, hear the word of God for us this morning. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves, they break in and steal, but, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light, but, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father, well, he knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray Psalm 19 back to you in worship. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment, may they be pleasing. May they be an act of worship in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, let's worship together. This morning... God's word invites us back into this, this famous sermon that Jesus preached. And like I said, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been making our way through this, this sermon on the mount, listening to King Jesus describe the kind of people he is making, the kind of kingdom he has been announcing. 
We've gone to the heights of the Beatitudes with him as he describes blessings that do more than talk about just happiness, but actually shape this countercultural character of God's people. On top of that mountain of blessing, we received a, a high calling from Jesus to be influencers in the world, like, like salt and light, to actually make a difference by living counterculturally in a world that is bent on its own destruction. After that high calling, Jesus actually brought us down, brought us down into the depths of our hearts, describing how, how deep his kingdom righteousness must go. But, but before he does that, he, he paves the way to those depths with his gracious righteousness. He explains, I did not come to get rid of the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, to accomplish them. Because there's one thing we have to get right about Jesus in this sermon on the mount. Even though he is a servant, he always goes first. He always leads the way. His grace always precedes our obedience. Because you see, kingdom righteousness is a grace-filled righteousness. Jesus does not just go first as an example, but more importantly as the one who enables kingdom living by making a way into that kingdom through his death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. But Jesus is also clear. Grace-filled righteousness, righteousness that calls for repentance before it calls for obedience, is still righteousness. And Jesus is very intent on getting down deep into our hearts, so intent that he not only talks about our sins like lust and anger, but actually goes after our spiritual practices, warning us against the ways that our hearts twist even our spiritual practices like giving and praying and fasting against our king. Because Jesus is not about just getting us to do the right things. He's about getting us to do all things rightly. In other words, he's not just about changing our behavior. He's about changing our desires, our heart. And so Jesus goes to the depths of our hearts in order to show us what we are really like and explain how far he is willing to go to make us right again because he loves us. And so as we step back into the Sermon on the Mount to see just how much he loves us, I want us to see how he warns us and, and, and what kind of life he is calling us into as his kingdom people. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is actually speaking to two audiences at the same time. He is preaching to the disciples that are sitting at his feet, disciples who have repented and, and, and committed to, to the way but he's also preaching to a, 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 a crowd that, that surrounds him and is trying to still figure out who he is. And so as we listen, whether we are disciples committed to the kingdom or like the crowd still listening in trying to figure out who Jesus is, Jesus has something for us this morning from this text, not just to fill our minds, but to challenge our hearts. And the way he does that is by offering us two ways to live, the way of the kingdom or the way of the world. Like the 90s rap duo, you can get with this or you can get with that. I'll show you what I mean. Here's how we walk into this text. Jesus drives his point home in this text and he uses four contrasts to do that. So this is how we're going to be looking at each in turn as Jesus is peeling back the layers of our hearts. He starts in verses 19 through 21 by contrasting two treasures, treasures in heaven or treasures on earth. Which will you pursue? 
But in typical Jesus-like way, he doesn't leave well enough alone. He peels back another layer in verses 22 through 23 and begins to contrast two conditions. Almost as if he's saying the answer to that pursuit question is actually found in the answer to another question. How's your eyesight? Or more accurately, with the cultural metaphor Jesus using, how's your heart sight? Is it healthy or unhealthy? But Jesus keeps going deeper, further, cutting with his scalpel to peel another layer back, saying, listen, the answer to whether your heart is healthy is really a question about who you serve. In verse 24, he contrasts two masters. Who you serve leads to your heart condition, which ultimately determines which treasure you pursue. And then, having touched on a raw spot, I think, our wise and wonderful counselor looks us in the eye with compassion and says, listen, who you serve and how you are and what you pursue, all of this is shaping your entire life. And so in verses 25 through 34, Jesus wisely, kindly, but directly with beautiful imagery, I might add, contrasts two postures, two attitudes, two ways of life, a life of worry or a life of trust. Which path will we take? Which posture will shape our lives? Step by step, Jesus takes us deeper and deeper into our hearts, touching on a nerve not to condemn but to convict and with compassion draw us further into the good life of his kingdom. Two treasures, two conditions, two masters and two postures. That's where we're going. That's how we'll get there for all of you note takers. But let's dive into the text together. Listen to each of these contrasts as the Spirit goes to work on us. Jesus begins by contrasting these two treasures. Pause. What comes to mind when you hear that word treasure? For all of the kids that are with us this morning, like me, I tend to think about pirates and maps that X marks the spot. Or if you're like, catch me on a Saturday morning, I think of Scrooge McDuck diving into his pile of gold and swimming. No one got that but the 90s kids. (laughs) What do you think Jesus means when he talks about treasures? Don't be so quick to answer, though. Before you answer, let me encourage you to resist the impulse to move too quickly past the material to some kind of spiritual answer. What do you treasure? Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves, they break in and steal. Let me start with the obvious. Jesus is giving us a command. Do not store up treasures on earth. What's not so obvious is what he necessarily means by treasures on earth. I think too often we read this passage or passages like that and we struggle because we tend to define treasure with ourselves as the reference point. What I mean by that is that that treasures on earth are what anybody that's better off than us has. We slip into a comparison game and we miss Jesus' entire point because he's not comparing. He is busy in our hearts contrasting. To us, treasures on earth are, are a bigger house or a better spouse, better kids, No one would say that. Maybe it's one boat or two, more zeros in the bank account, a more diversified portfolio, a better neighborhood, a nicer job, more, better. And we distort the mirror that Jesus is placing in front of us, trying to turn it into a window to look at all the other people out there. 
Let me ask you, what do you treasure? What do you value above all else? What do you value in the wrong order? Kent Hughes has this great line in his book writing, uh, defining this for us. says, if anything in this world is everything to you, it is an earthly treasure. Why do you think Jesus warns us against the accumulation of earthly treasures? I don't think it's because earthly treasures are bad in and of themselves. I think it's because earthly treasures, they, they make a bad investment. They don't last. They're vulnerable. An exterminator, a security system, your, your endless supply of poison and traps and baseball bats under the bed, none of it will protect your treasure well enough. Inflation rates and market crashes and the whispers of a recession, they all come creeping in while we're busy trying to stand guard and we don't even see that our treasure is eating away at our hearts. And so Jesus tells us, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. A, a different kind of treasure in a different kind of safe where, where investments pay dividends for eternity because it's not about how much we have. It's about who we are. What kind of person are we becoming? Are you the kind of person that is blessed by Jesus, growing in love and understanding, being shaped in secret by God? Or are we being distorted in public by our self-righteousness? Are we being twisted in private, hungering and thirsting for more rather than the kingdom righteousness Jesus is calling us to? What kind of person are we becoming? How do we spend our money? What do we daydream about? What would we do anything to try and avoid? What's your vision of the good life? Is it God's kingdom? Or is it some account on IG? Is it a neighbor? Is it Hollywood? Is it HGTV? Let me show you something I think clarifies this passage. Give you a little bit of space to breathe after all my questions. First Timothy 6, Jesus says through Paul's pen, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, moths, vermins, thieves, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, Jesus is not against owning a house, working hard, Opening up a bank account, budgeting or saving, investing or enjoying, he's not telling us to avoid wealth or get rid of it. He is telling us to avoid putting your hope in it. See your wealth as, wealth as a gift of God to be enjoyed. And so instead of putting your hope in it, you hope in God. And you demonstrate that hope by being rich in righteousness, by being generous by keeping what we all learned in kindergarten in front of us, being willing to share. By doing this, we lay up treasures for eternity. By doing this, we take hold of true life rather than the false life that wealth tries to promise us, that riches and other earthly treasures tries to promise us. Why? 
Is Jesus telling us this because of verse 21 in Matthew 6? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I find it very interesting here that Jesus doesn't say what your treasure is, but where. Because I think where you treasure actually has a better job of revealing what you treasure. Bank accounts are for dollars and vaults are for gold bars and and piggy banks are for coins, but heaven, Jesus says, is for real treasure. Because heaven won't hold your Bitcoin or your investment portfolio. It will not try to keep your 401k safe or even cash your paycheck week to week. Heaven is a treasury of righteousness, of kingdom living taking all the things that try to be gods in our lives and making them into goods that serve God and draw more people to God. Familia, what do we treasure? What occupies our thoughts when our minds wander? What keeps us up at night? What are the markings on the ruler that we use to measure others by? What makes us worry? What generates fear? just at the thought of losing it. Everything that just flashed in your mind or in your heart as I asked those questions, especially the ones you tried to get really past really quickly, let me ask you, how do you bring those to Jesus that he might continue to shape your heart with his, teaching you to value what he values, putting everything in its proper place? Treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? That's Jesus' contrast number one. But like I said, this is Jesus' just first layer. So if you were a little conflicted in the last few minutes, Jesus has more for us. You see, he keeps peeling away layers with this second contrast, two conditions. How's your eyesight? Jesus uses this new illustration to make a point, but it's not really about eyes that see in 2020. It's, it's, it's really a, a Jewish rabbinic image to talk about a heart, a, a, a healthy heart or an unhealthy heart. Because listen, treasures on earth, especially money, well, they make for a really bad set of glasses. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. You see, it's not enough for the light to shine, Jesus tells us. You need to be able to see the light. You need healthy eyes. I think Jesus uses this illustration of light and darkness in this moment to set up a uh, he who has ears to hear situation here. Healthy eyes, they see the world truly. The kingdom gives us 20-20 vision. But, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness, Jesus says. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Because you see, unhealthy eyes, well, they, they struggle with reality. It's like trying to move around in the dark. Will you see life as God is describing it, believing that it really is better to store up treasures in heaven Or will you keep walking around in the dark trying to build up your treasures on earth? You see, living in the kingdom actually changes the way we see the world. It marks us with God's generosity in his gospel. It marks us with the trust that the same king whose riches of grace and mercy overflowed to us in Jesus will take care of us no matter what. And seeing reality like that, well, that supercharges generosity. 
Because you no longer see the world as divided between haves and have-nots, or, or ruled by a principle of scarcity, of, of not enough. Because in God's kingdom, there is always more than enough. He is a God of abundance that will provide for every need we have. Are we going to see with healthy or unhealthy eyes? Trusting in God by storing up treasures in heaven or worried that there won't be enough making us look out for number one ourselves above everyone else? Two treasures, two conditions. What we treasure in the condition of our eyes, our hearts, they reveal what's happening inside. And Jesus starts with these two contrasts, but his scalpel continues to cut deeper and he gets to a third contrast answering the question of what's really behind the greed and the fear and the worries that might plague us. Why do we pursue this or that? Who are we serving? Jesus contrasts two masters because who we serve determines how we live and no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you cannot, Jesus says, serve both God and money. In other words, there are no dual citizens in God's kingdom with one foot in his kingdom and another in the kingdom of the almighty dollar. We cannot serve God and money. How we treasure or what we treasure and how we see reveals more than what's the condition of our hearts. It reveals the master that we are serving. And Jesus leaves no rooms for maybes or or what about It is not possible to live life committed to God and love money at the same time. Now, how do you know who you're serving? Well, when it comes down to it, who we serve is always revealed by how we live. You may say you're serving God, but how you live will really tell the truth, especially when things get tight and our confidence in the king is shaken by our circumstances. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones shares a story illustrating this point. He says, I'm making up the story, here we go. He says, a farmer one day went with great joy to report to his wife that his, his, their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. And he said, you know, dear, suddenly I have had a feeling and an impulse. We, we have to dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We're going to bring them up together, and when the time comes, we're going to sell one and keep the proceeds, and then we'll sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. And so his wife very wisely asked him which one he was going to dedicate to the Lord. Oh, no need to bother about that now, he said. We'll treat them both the same way, and when the time comes, we'll do as I say. Well, in a few months, you can imagine what happened. The man entered his kitchen looking very unhappy, And when his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have bad news. The Lord's calf is dead. (laughs) She said, you you hadn't actually decided which one was the Lord's calf. He said, oh, yes, I I knew from the very beginning that it was the white one, and it's the white one that's died. The Lord's calf is, is dead. When money becomes difficult, the first thing we economize on is our contribution to God's work. It is always the Lord's calf that dies first. How do we know money is our master? What do we turn to when life gets hard? When the bank account is tight, when the economy dips and inflation rises, what happens to our commitments to God's kingdom? 
Now, let me be careful and clear here. I'm not encouraging you to ignore the economy. I'm not encouraging you to pretend that your paycheck is bigger than it actually is. My extended family still wears the scars of prosperity gospel and money seeds that preachers demanded as true commitments to God's kingdom. What I am suggesting is a diagnostic. Do we start to fudge on our calling to be generous, our commitment to God's kingdom through our finances, our allegiance to the king when life is hard? Or even worse, when our hearts get a little too greedy, when Apple makes a new announcement, when the new J's drop, when another investment opportunity comes our way that we can't pass up. In other words, when things change, does our kingdom commitment change? Or do we stand firm in allegiance to our king? But Jesus still isn't done with us. You see, he's been working towards a point this whole time And you might be surprised to know that it's not just about money. Because you see, as Jesus has been peeling back the layers, he has been transitioning from two treasures to two conditions to two masters, leading us to two postures. Because money is not the real problem. Our hearts are. And how do we see what's going on in the depths of our hearts? By seeing what comes out of them by being confronted by the posture we take when circumstances change. Is it a posture of worry or a posture of trust? Let me show you what Jesus is working towards in the final section of our text this morning, starting with verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. A few verses later, do not worry. And then one more time for good measure, do not worry. You see, Jesus is repeating himself three times, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Some translations even say, don't be anxious. And if Jesus is repeating himself, I feel like we should pay attention. We should also pay attention to how he got there in the first place. You see, Jesus transitions to this fourth and final contrast with the very specific word, therefore, He peels back every layer, who you serve and how you are and what you treasure, and underneath it all, here is what he is calling us to. He is calling us to a non-anxious way of life. You see, what reveals our heart more than our giving statement or our bank accounts is how we posture ourselves. Not just what happens when everything hits the fan, but what does the daily posture of our heart look like as we live? Is worry or trust the innermost disposition of our souls? I can imagine how that question hits some of you. We read Jesus' words here and we hear condemnation rather than compassion. You you hear me talk about worry and trust and, and you hear just another preacher telling you for the you can't imagine how many times it's been done to just get over it. Why do you worry so much? Why are you so anxious? Don't you have faith in God? Familia, for anyone here who deals with anxiety, from minor worries in the day-to-day to to the major spirals of what-ifs that spiral into darkness that you just can't get to seem to get yourself out of, Jesus' voice here is not one of do better. Do better. 
It's not one of just, just stop it already. Well, why can't you change? His is the voice of gentle care that calls you out of the spiral over and over again, no matter how many times it takes, however he needs to, not with shame, but with tenderness. Don't worry. Uh, my second daughter's name is Liliana. Because four years ago, her pregnancy was, was riddled with anxiety for my wife and I. You see, she was our uh, rainbow baby, the gift that God gave us after we had miscarried twins. He, he held on to us as we worried and, and multiplied ultrasounds and checkups and check-ins just in case. And I am not exaggerating when, it was one of the most, when I say it was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of our lives as we prayed that, that we would not lose another little one. And so by the time we had God's gift to us in our arms, we had decided to name her Liliana because of this passage. Because of our anxiety, because of the lilies of the field, because we wanted, we needed to remember that God cares that he does not abandon, that he does not forsake, and he doesn't just tell us to get it together. He is the one who keeps us together. Familia, some of you might not have heard this before, but in this life and on this earth, anxiety is normal because we live in a broken world. Anxiety is normal. You are not alone if you are struggling with anxiety, but even if it is normal, I also want to tell you it is not life-giving. Those of you who really struggle with anxiety, you already know that. Anxiety is not something that produces life, but it's something that keeps taking until there's nothing left. And it does it by hijacking our attention and pointing us in the wrong direction. It, it draws our attention away from God towards other things or other people or possible scenarios. It drives us into a fog where we see ourselves differently than God sees us. Where we struggle when we can't quite see God as he really is. Where the distortion distorts others into objects of fear rather than people we care for. Anxiety twists the word of God to get us to hear, not do not worry with compassion, but as something that just says fix yourselves rather than come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Listen, family, when Jesus tells us do not worry, he is not telling us to ignore the problem, to pretend it's not happening, as if it's just going to go away. No, Jesus is inviting us into a different way of life, from worry to trust. And if you look at this text, he does it by redirecting our attention. Look at verse 25. I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll wear. First redirection is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Don't focus on what you eat, drink, or wear so much that you turn basic necessities into unhealthy worry. 
Because your life and your body, well, they are more than what sustains them. You see, part of the lie of our worry and anxiety is that we overestimate the value of things like what we eat, drink, or wear. We evaluate our life and our bodies incorrectly. We reduce them to food and clothes when life and our bodies are so much more than that. And Jesus wants to redirect our attention using examples. He tells us, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns, and yet, and yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? You see, Jesus' emphasis in this first example is on that final question, are you not much more valuable than they? Our worries and anxieties, they do us a disservice because they preach a false gospel to us. They lie to us saying that we are not valuable to God, that we do not matter to him. But as Jesus directs our eyes to the skies, he directs us past the birds to our Father in heaven, and he says, you matter way more than you think you do. God sees you. He really and truly sees you, and he cares. And so Jesus follows up his question with another question. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You're worried. You're anxious, you're so caught up that you keep spiraling down and you, you know it's not working. Worry cannot stretch your lifetime and anxiety will not change your circumstance. And Jesus' question is one of compassion as much as it is a question of clarity. Not, just stop it, you know that doesn't work. But do you see that it's not helping? That it cannot help because no matter how much anxiety puffs itself up and fills your mind and your heart, it can't be the God that it wants to be because only God controls time. And as that question pierces our worry, Jesus redirects our attention again. Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field. See them grow. They don't labor. They don't spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Look at the flowers, Jesus continues. They're not working as hard as you're working. And yet they are better clothed than the richest king you can think of. Let me ask you something, Jesus says. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? This flower is temporary, Jesus says, but you, my love, you are not. You are worth so much more than this temporary fire starter. God gave you your life. He gave you your body, and he loves you. Do you think that he has forgotten how he made you? That you need to eat and drink and be clothed? Why do you worry? You know how I know Jesus is here speaking with compassion and rather than condemnation? Because like one commentator says, Jesus' life was far from uh, bird-like or lily-like. The Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head, he says. And yet Jesus trusted God. Jesus, provided, uh, Jesus trusted God to provide for him exactly what he needed to do, exactly what he came to do, which is to save us. Jesus is not telling us not to worry as someone who doesn't know what it's like to live day to day, not sure where his next meal would come from. As someone who is, is unaware or even inexperienced with worry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, 
to the point of shedding blood. Jesus is not telling us to stop working and wait for God to drop food in our mouths or, or make clothes appear. The birds, they still gather food and the lilies still need to grow roots looking for water. He's not telling us that we shouldn't care for others because God is caring for them. Later, he actually tells us that disciples are those who feed and clothe the poor as if they are feeding and clothing Jesus. And the fact that we are commanded to care for others doesn't mean that God has been sleeping on the job. What Jesus is saying is that when we worry about all these things, when the pursuit of our necessities and even our wants consume our entire lives, they choke out the life of the kingdom and we are focusing all of our attention in the wrong place. Our posture of worry minimizes our faith and tries to get our needs met in our own way and our own timing because who knows? God may or may not keep his promises He may not care for me as much as I think he does or he says he does. I don't know. You of little faith, Jesus says. Not with shame, but inviting trust. Do you trust that God is who he says he is? What do we do when worry and anxiety creep up and tempt us away from trust? Jesus continues, don't worry. What shall, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans, they run after all these things, and your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. You see, letting that worry grow and fester and regain control, Jesus says, is to live like who you no longer are. You're not pagans anymore. You are not of the world anymore. You are children of the king. Remember what Jesus said earlier in chapter 6. Do not pray like the pagans. Why? Because your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. Don't let your worries build up and convince you of something that's not true of your heavenly Father, that he is somehow ignorant of your needs, or that he doesn't care. You see, worry has this uncanny ability to distort the prayer Jesus taught us to pray and force our needs before God's kingdom because we're worried that he is not the king he says he is. Jesus has called us to live differently, and that means that he is inviting us to a different posture, a posture of trust that reflects the kind of peace that prays like Jesus taught us to pray. A posture of trust that seeks first his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that all these things, all that we need, will be given to us as well. What does that mean for us? It means we put his glory before our needs. It it means we pray his kingdom come and his will be done. It means we actively pursue his will, his righteousness, demonstrating his good kingdom wherever he places us. But ultimately, it means we trust in the gospel. And for some of us here, it means that the way we obey Jesus' command not to worry is to actually ask for help to open ourselves up and process what's happening in our head and our hearts with, with a group, a life group, a, a group of people that the Lord has put around you, or, or even with someone that the Lord has placed, one of the shepherds he has placed to love and serve his people here, one of our pastors. For, for some of us, obeying Jesus' command not to worry may mean talking to a therapist, setting up boundaries with harmful people, taking medication when it is necessary, You see, having clinical anxiety requiring medication is not a lack of faith. It's not even a sin. 
It is actually a result of the fall, and it is dangerous to avoid getting help because seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness means we believe Jesus when he tells us that sin goes to the core of our being and even has the possibility of affecting our brain chemistry. That medication may not be the only solution, but it may be part of the solution for certain people to actually obey Jesus' command not to worry. Maybe the way we obey Jesus' command not to worry, to pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness, is not by pretending that we don't worry, but by bravely bringing worry and anxiety into his light and receiving all the ways that draw us back to Jesus, back to his kingdom, back to his righteousness, and admitting that we are not okay. Listen to the final verse of our text. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, Jesus is not ignorant or careless. He knows there is trouble in the world and in our own hearts. The question is not whether or not there will be trouble, but whether or not we will trust him in it. Our fears, they are liars. Our worries, they are multipliers, just trying to make it worse for us. But Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow because there is grace for each and every day. Grace to get through, not alone, but with Jesus. Not alone, but with Jesus' people. Not alone, but with the truth that your heavenly Father sees and cares and knows what you need before you even ask for it. Familia, he has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. That's not what the gospel is. It's actually quite the opposite. Even when it feels like you've been abandoned, you need to know that Jesus himself felt that way on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went all the way to that cross for you and for me. But God did not abandon him to the grave. God raised him back to life so that anyone who, who believes in him would not die in their sins but find life, true life in him. This is the core of the gospel. God has not abandoned you. He came because he loves you. He made you. He saved you if you believe. Jesus contrasts two ways here because one way leads to death and the other leads to life. And he is, he is calling us to the only life-giving posture that there is. He is calling us to trust in God, in the God who did what he said he would do, that, who made a way back to him, who invites us into his kingdom, not by our own efforts, but through his death and through his resurrection, the power of his resurrection to make hearts that were dead in sin come alive in him. God has not abandoned you. The gospel testifies to that day in and day out. This morning, I want to do something a little bit differently as we close. I want to invite the band back up, and I, I want Amy to start playing. And as she plays, I want to invite you to actually close your eyes. To pay attention to what Jesus is directing your attention away from. To pay attention to the things that Jesus, the person that Jesus is directing your attention to. Your Heavenly Father who knows what you need before you even ask. Breathe. You are worth far more than the birds of the air 
and the flowers of the fields. Breathe. Familia, it is okay to not be okay. Really, it is. This morning, if you're burdened by anxiety, if you are worried about God's provision or his protection, if you are caught up in the spiral of what-ifs that lead to darkness, panic attacks, weeping, this morning I plead with you to hear the compassionate voice of Jesus. It's, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And Jesus loves you too much to leave you there. He knows what you need before you even ask, even when you don't know what to ask. How to pray. Breathe. He has not left you there. He does not just tell you to stop it. He does not just tell you to get over it. So why can't you believe just for once that is not the voice of Jesus? Rest in his love. He is Jaira, as we are about to sing, our provider, the one who gives us everything we need and nothing we don't. The song we're about to sing, I'm going to invite you to sing it as a prayer. To sing the words, Jesus, you are more than enough for me. As a prayer for your heart, for your soul. But I'm not ignorant about how hard it can be to pray when you're anxious, when you're worried. And so this morning, if you can't pray, I want you to hear your brothers and sisters pray around you as they sing. You of little faith, would you let the faith of your family hold you up in this moment and point you to Jesus? Jesus, we need you. You are more than enough. Give us grace. Like the Father in the gospel cries out, Jesus, we believe. Would you help our unbelief? Help our anxieties. Would you remind our hearts as many times as we need it that you are enough? We need you more than we even know. Amen.